Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. First, what I want to know, Sydney, is what was your childhood like? What kind of person were you growing up and what kind of interests did you have? Well, uh, I grew up in Canada, in Montreal. And I'm the youngest of three brothers. I guess I'd characterize us as lower middle class to middle class. My father was a factory worker. My mother was mostly working at home and then had some other odd jobs um, while bringing up the, the kids. And we lived in the city, not in beautiful leafy suburbs. So, uh, but you know, inner city in Montreal is not quite the same as inner city in a lot of big American cities that imply some degree of risk and danger. And it was just a simple neighborhood. It was kind of row houses together. And I don't know what I really did as a kid other than I, I know I did a, a lot of sports, all pickup sports, not organized sports. I actually did most of the organizing myself. You get a group together and we play street hockey. This being Canada, street hockey is what you do. Most of us didn't have skates actually until later and touch football and softball and all kinds of things. So I I was always out doing stuff like that with friends and neighbors around the area. I don't know. My parents certainly emphasized education, but they uh, they were not hands-on. They, I remember when they would go to the, uh, what did we call it, parent-teacher night, and they'd come back, and they were always happy because the teachers would say, Sidney's a good boy, pays attention, he does his homework. Uh, I wasn't a troublemaker. I've tried to make up for that since then, but it's kind of tough. I mean, were you quiet in school? Were you I a- was very quiet. I was very quiet. In fact, I was, I only realized this in high school, because when you're really young, you don't know. It's rare to be really self-aware, but in high school, I realized because I was quiet, maybe many professors could tell you something like this, but uh, almost every professor was the smartest kid in their class or close to it. And I knew the answers to a lot of questions, but I thought they weren't good enough questions. This is really arrogant, isn't it? They weren't good (laughs) enough questions, so I didn't raise my hand to answer them. And so there were teachers who didn't think I knew what I was doing until the test comes, and then I do well, and they're wondering about that. <laughs> so that happened a little bit, but I, I was definitely an introvert. In many ways, still, uh, I'm still an introvert in the sense that I, I think there's a genetic basis to intro and extroversion, but I've learned to channel that in public arenas. And for years, I have had no problem going in front of groups from classroom to thousands of people and putting on a show for them and loving it, not just faking it, but loving it. So that's kind of interesting how you can kind of grow into that over time. Yeah. So when you were growing up, were you an ambitious kid? Did you set goals? Did you know what you wanted to do in life? Or did life just kind of unfold for you? Yeah, I didn't uh, know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do something special. That's kind of all. I didn't want to waste my opportunity. 
but I didn't know what I would do. And in fact, I ended up early on start uh, studying accounting because my older brother uh, was uh, was an accountant. He was 11 years older than me. And so he was very influential. And uh, and I discovered that I didn't like it very much. Then kind of, it's like one step leads to another. I had no master plan. I've always found that interesting. On my own podcast, I talk about this quite a lot as well. How there's some people that have this kind of game plan of step by step, even as, uh, as as teenagers, and their parents, of course, are driving that into college. And I think many people have the assumption that more people are like that than not. And my experience is that actually very, very few people are like that. Stuff happens, you know, there's a randomness to life, but who you meet, in fact, in terms of relationships, how you get a job. I mean, my one of the reasons I ended up becoming an academic is when I was at the London School of Economics for a master's degree, which, by the way, I did because I wanted to live in London more than I wanted to go to LSE. Uh, that's why I chose it over other alternatives, uh, including probably more practical alternatives like an MBA. This wasn't an MBA, it was a MSc, a little bit different. But in any event, I got a chance to go back to my undergraduate school as, a instru- as an instructor. And the reason that happened is because somebody in uh, just a few months earlier had passed away and they didn't have time to go through a recruiting process. They knew I was a good student and they figured, let's ask, uh, let's ask Sydney. And I thought, wow, that's unbelievable. Come back at the age of 23 and start teaching is a little bit crazy. And I said, uh, yes. And that's how I discovered what the academic world looks like. So what did you want to do with all your schooling? Did you want to be just a professor and teach people and enrich people's lives? Or was it a vehicle to spin off and do other things? Or what was your thought process of you know, going to LSE, getting your PhD from Columbia and, and doing all these other courses and programs? My undergraduate degree is from Concordia University, which is actually a big university in Montreal, but not at all well known. It's an excellent school, but not, not well known, certainly not a high prestige school. And I went there because I lived in Montreal, and even today, it's much more likely than not that you go to a university in your hometown, and you more often than not live at home. Totally different to the American model. And by the way, more common in Europe. Europe is, is more similar to Canada than it is to the U.S. U.S. is a bit of an outlier. So I, I just did that, and then the LSE thing came up because I knew I wanted to kind of stay in school a little bit longer, and I wanted to see the world a little bit more. And as I mentioned, that's why I picked London over other places. So I wasn't a serious academic student at that time. I, I, did, I did well, but I, I wasn't thinking about a degree in that, or a PhD or, at all. And it turned out that in my job as an instructor, when I came back after LSE and I went back to my undergraduate institution, Concordia University, I was there on a two-year contract and they did not renew my contract. And you find that out, you know, eight or nine months ahead of time. There's a long lead time. And I had done very well. I had good teacher ratings and all the rest. And they did a, they, they did a, they gave me a tremendous gift. And I actually, I talk about it in the context of super bosses. You know, what does a super boss do? What does this great leader do? They help you get better and they sometimes do stuff to you that you might not be ready for. And they forced me to leave and they, forced me to decide if I thought that living in and being in the university world is what I want, I needed to get a PhD. And I would not have done that at that stage. And so again, it's kind of like a step-by-step. And my basic goal was just to try to be excellent at whatever I was doing. I didn't have this bigger picture of you know, changing the world, writing these books, uh, influencing the practice of management, or, or just being a teacher. Uh, I, I just wanted to be excellent at what I was, what I was doing. But over time, I made a discovery, which is that the, the life of a professor is really an entrepreneurial life. And I did not know that at all going through my PhD program. What do you, what do you mean by that? 
It means you can do anything. It's one of those unusual careers where you have a boss, but it's not a very you know, tightly controlled boss. You have to produce. In the end of the year, they review what you've done. And of course, if you haven't done very well, you're not going to get promoted and you're not going to get tenure. And if you don't get tenure, you get fired, basically. So it's right. kind of a big deal. Uh, but it's, it's all put on you individually to manage that, almost all. And you have to do it yourself. It's academic work, research work is, uh, is kind of a lonely job. But what I realize is that my job was to try to come up with answers to questions I thought were really, really interesting. It turns out a lot of other people did, like why do some companies fail when they've been doing successfully before? And that was why smart executives fail. What, what, what differentiates some of the best leaders from others? That's super bosses. How to make better decisions? And that's think again. And, and it turns out that when you come up with these types of answers, there's a lot of people who want to hear about it. There's right. a lot of people who want to know about that. And that creates a gigantic market, not just for books, but especially for speeches and consulting. And that's how I really got into consulting and, and building kind of a public presence through my podcast, a lot of media and other things that, I, that I've done. And, and so the entrepreneurial idea is sticking with the same job, meaning university professor, you can do 10 different things and you could change them when you want to change them. And you're in control of that destiny. And that's what I discovered. And that's what's kept me in it all these years. So is it true? You know, when I was doing some research on you, I, I found that you published 25 books. Is that true? And uh, yeah, I didn't make that one up. <laughs> and so how did you have time to write 25 books? And I mean, is writing a passion of yours? I mean, obviously there's got to be some passion there to, to talk more about this whole experience. Sure, sure. And so, yeah, I do love to write. I once thought I would be Actually, in college, I almost went down a path of journalism, which would have been kind of a scary thing nowadays because of what's gone on in the digital revolution in newspapers, et cetera. But I always liked to, uh, I always liked to write. And, and I, was, I was good at it, not novelist good, but good at it. And then when I started to do research, m- many people might not know, but most research you do as an academic, you're writing uh, articles for academic journals, peer-reviewed very technical, um, very uh, kind of narrow slices that try to demonstrate something really, uh, hopefully important. I expanded from that portfolio to writing books because I was interested in impacting a much bigger audience. Uh, When you write an academic article, there could be a thousand people uh, that'll read it. More likely, there'll be a hundred, but it could be a thousand. You write a book and a book that has something to say that kind of get some, get some presence and some notoriety. And there are tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands to potentially millions of people that read it or know about that and use those ideas. And that canvas, that type of impact was really what I wanted. Kept on going down that path. And, and you know, to be fair, kind of full, full disclosure on the books, there are a lot of different types of books. A bunch of the books I've written are uh, edited books in that, which means that I'm the editor, I've written an article in there, but other people have written it and I've kind of curated that. A smaller number of books are books that I've done the original research and, and written the books. And those are many year long projects. You know, Super Bosses was 10 years from when I got the idea to when the book came out. Why Smart Executives Fail was six years from beginning to end, gigantic uh, projects. Uh, and those, uh, those were true labor, labor loves. You got, you got to love it if you're going to stick with something that long with tremendous uncertainty. I mean, you don't know whether a publisher is going to buy the book. You don't know whether the book's going to do well. You have to believe that it's, you're doing something that's, that is important, that other people are going to care about, that's going to have an impact, and that you yourself get a lot out of. And that's, that's kind of my mindset around, around books. The bottom line is, if I want to have a big impact on more people, if I want to influence how people think about their profession, their job, if I want to help people become more successful 
as managers and as leaders, that's what you got to do. And that's why I went that direction. Go through books. Yeah. And I want, I want to talk more about super bosses here later on, but first I want to get your perspective on this. How do you think the world of corporate finance or strategy and leadership, how do you think this has shifted throughout the years and, and where do you see like mega trends going into the future? Well, of course, uh, you know, when you start you know, looking at that crystal ball, it's tough. Nobody would have predicted 2020. Well, Bill Gates did, but just about nobody predicted 2020. And, and this, this year has changed everything. But uh, if I were to take more of a broad brush stroke, one thing you see, you, we've seen is that finance has played, and this has been going on for some time, a bigger and bigger role in the strategy of a company and the running of a company. As one example, maybe 20 years ago, it was common to have a CFO and a CSO, a chief strategy officer. And there are hardly any, any companies that have a position like that. And they almost, if they have someone like that, they wouldn't generally call them a chief strategy officer to imply some level of equality with the CFO. In fact, strategy is now under the job of the CFO in most companies. And that's because of the importance of applying financial discipline and analytics. And, and maybe in part because many companies have partially outsourced some of their strategic work through McKinsey and Bain and BCG and the others, which these consulting firms, my students go to these firms, they are absolutely booming. So finance has played a bigger role. And I think more CEOs have come from finance. If you go back 50 and 60 years, the pathway to becoming a CEO was having experience in manufacturing and ops. And that changed in the 70s and 80s, where there were many more deals being made, buying and selling of companies, constructing your portfolio of businesses, and a financial background turned out to be quite a bit more, more useful. And, you know, looking into the future, I think specifically around COVID, what we've learned is that it is possible for a company, for a group of, of leaders to change how they run their business. Those that haven't done that have gone out of business or put themselves in such a weak position. But many, many, many companies quite remarkably have adapted in in record time. I mean, I think of, for example, one CEO I spoke to not that long ago, Rob Todd is his name. He's the CEO of Allagash Beer out of Maine. It's kind of a craft beer, one of the biggest craft beer makers in in America, big award winner. And he and I were talking about, of course, COVID really hurt their company because you don't go to bars nearly as much or at all. And that's where you can buy a lot of beer. Uh, so they did take a hit in revenue, but they had these plans for various new product introductions, marketing campaigns, re-energizing some brands. And they had a three-year window to accomplish all that. And he was saying after three months of COVID, they had done most of what was on their agenda. They had gone at such a lightning speed. And they said, we're never going to go back to the pace we did. We went before. We thought we were going fast. This is you know, a relatively entrepreneurial firm. We thought we were going fast, but we've learned something completely new. And, and you see it even in a larger scale, say telemedicine. Telemedicine is everywhere. It's not going away. And, but to get telemedicine to become a thing, how many years did that take? I mean, we've been talking about that for more than a decade. Venture capitalists have thrown gazillions of dollars into it and, it's, and it went nowhere until now where all of a sudden it's everywhere and it's not going to go away. So that pace of change is going to be, is, is not going away. It's going to be standard and that's going to be a challenge for executives that are less comfortable with that, whether that's a finance executive or, or anyone else. So when it comes to strategy, and, you, and you're an expert in this area, and you work with a lot of different companies in different capacities, what do they get wrong? Is it the approach that's wrong? Is it they're trying to be too predictive about the future? Are they not executing right? Like, Do you see some commonalities here among companies when it comes to strategy? You know, the, the, answer, uh, the answer is yes. All of those things happen. But if I were to kind of uh, highlight some of the most common 
patterns that uh, that I've seen and continue to see. I, I wrote about it in Why Smart Executives Fail, but I continue to kind of model it and not model it, but watch it and monitor it and work in and work in the field. There's a uh, there's a belief that your past experience is the right experience, and it's a really tough one. I I, I talk about this in, in in some of my writing and. And a lot of my consulting, or I do some coaching as well with exec, with senior executives. Experience gets you, you know, it gets it gets you to where you're you're at, right? Your experience is so central to your success, and that's of course that's critical, that's important. The problem with experience, especially good experiences, you tend to rely on it. It's your crutch. It's what got you to the winner circle. But it's not just that the world is changing. It's changing as fast as, as I've seen. Uh, that's for sure. And so one of the real problems that happens when it comes to strategy is believing that either what you what worked in the past is going to work or to extrapolate patterns or you know, patterns from the past to continue into the future. And this extends to leadership as well, because there is an assumption, and maybe this is wired into us, I don't know, but there's an assumption that so much in life is linear, that if something happened, that pattern will continue, or that if something is good for you, eating, eating an avocado, people love avocados, I love avocados, eating an avocado is good for you because it's a good fat and it's, it's healthy. Uh, it does good stuff for you. That's good. But what about eating two avocados or three? If, if one is good, then shouldn't two be better? Shouldn't three be even better? And of course, that's not true. Almost everything, and I'm not going to say everything because there's always exceptions, but almost everything kind of follows a um, inverted U-shaped curve, which is something people really should think about with respect to themselves, with respect to strategy, with respect to leadership. You can become better and better and better at something. You can develop expertise in an area, but there comes a point where the incremental returns, you kind of get to the asymptote of that line, right? And, and, and you get really, really incremental returns. But because that's what you know how to do, because that's what you've been successful at, you keep on going for that kind of micro improvement. And the risk is you're going to miss the fact that there's an entirely new curve starting. This is the essence of what's behind, you know, work around the innovator's dilemma by Clay Christensen. It's behind most of what we've seen in, in, in technology. If you look at the giant players, Google, Facebook, Amazon, they each did a different thing in technology. They didn't do what somebody else was doing. They created the new curve. That's what they've done. And Microsoft and IBM and some of these old line companies, and Microsoft, of course, has recovered dramatically to their credit, but they had a long period of kind of struggling. Uh, but these companies that have been in it for a long time, they don't jump onto that new curve. They find that very difficult. And when they do, they become second or third tier players like Bing versus Google. That's really what, what happens. And I think good thing for, for your listeners to think about, I, I would say even every day, but I say especially when they're thinking about the future of their company, they're thinking about strategy and they're thinking about themselves is what part of, our, of my personal repertoire when it comes to leadership, what part of our repertoire when it comes to uh, strategy of the company, what part is actually not going to keep going in the same pace? What, what, what is the risk? What are the assumptions behind this? I have a lot of exercises in the Super Bosses playbook, kind of the second book on Super Bosses that help companies, help leaders get at that. What are the underlying assumptions? What might change? It's not that people never say that or talk about that. It's that people don't, don't do it because the comfort zone is there, right? You know what you're doing and you're good at it. Why would you want to be any different? Why would you want to change? It got you the winner's circle. But you really have to remember, and it's a human nature thing, you really have to remember that just like in the ancient Greek tragedies that we may have read in high school or college, those classic plays, they, they, they had a theme. And the theme was those things that get you to the top, if left untouched or unchanged, will also lead to your eventual downfall. They were talking about that two or 3,000 years ago, and we're talking about it today because it's about human nature. 
Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. Well, let, let's shift gears and talk about the downfall of emerging leaders because you know you get the unique opportunity to teach at a great business school, the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth, and you're surrounded around these these bright students who are in the business program, and then they go off and they go and, and work in a variety of fields, consulting and you know investment banking, and some are entrepreneurs and so on and so forth. And I'm sure you get to follow some of their paths. Why, why do you think some bright stars, emerging leaders end up falling short or failing in their careers? Are, are there certain characteristics or certain things that they do that get them into trouble? So that's a, that's a great question. I'd say, first of all, remarkably, the track record of success of our alums is kind of, kind of astounding. That doesn't mean 100% because there's nothing in the world that's 100%. It is, it is astounding. But really, what happens when it doesn't go as, as well? And I'd say in the earlier part of a career, the number one thing I see is believing that being smart and analytical and having the right answer is enough and you win. And it turns out it's not, not the case because you, if, you're, if you're in a startup or any company, you have to execute on that. It doesn't matter whether they have a good idea. There's a million good ideas. It's your ability to bring it to, to market. But even if you're working in a company, working in a team, you know, when, you, when you go to these elite schools, you, you, it's very hard to get in. And how do you get in? You write these GMATs and other things, right? And you have this, these super high scores. And in school, you're given a grade for what you do. In the real world, you don't, there are no grades like that. There's no particular reward for coming up with, quote unquote, the right answer. If you can't sell that idea to other people, you can't convince other people it's in their interest to adopt that idea. And if you can't execute on that. And I found that to be one of the major stumbling blocks usually more often early on in a career, but absolutely later on. I mean, you see it even later on as, as well for some people who don't understand really. The, the biggest problem is for people who are really, really smart. You know, the reason I think about this, because I see it in professions. I see it among doctors. I see it among scientists. I certainly see it among academics, among lawyers. These, these super bright people really believe that, that they've got the right answer when they, when they come up with something. Engineers are notorious for this. You got the right answer. And if you don't adopt it, I mean, you're stupid. It doesn't sure. work that way. You're stupid if you can't convince me to adopt it. That's, that's the right answer. And that's a hard thing for a super intelligent person to, uh, to accept. And then the second thing that I've seen that I think pushes people off the track, and this, this goes on not just the beginning of a career, all the way through, is, is around learning. I think learning is actually a capability and a leadership capability at that. It has to do with what I said earlier around experience. Uh, if you're not learning, then you're, out, then you're stuck with whatever your past experience has been. And you better hope that it doesn't deteriorate or doesn't become obsolete. But le- learning, and especially now, you know, what, what competitive advantage does anyone have as, a, as an individual? We, ha- we have our skill sets, but those skill sets are getting eroded. You have to stay up to date. You have to keep learning. And then you have to sometimes unlearn things you thought were right and learn completely new ways to do that. We've seen it for the last 15 years in industry after industry in terms of the digital revolution. That's kind of old news, except that sure. it's still going on. The retail sector was struggling with that before COVID. And now COVID, I think, is the is the nail in the coffin. They'll never be able to go back 
uh, today. I mean, look at uh, what look at grocery shopping, Instacart. Look at how much business is being done through e-commerce. And so you have to unlearn ways of operating and learn new things. Psychologists have talked about that decades ago. That learning actually requires deep learning in a changing environment requires two things, not one thing. First is the unlearning and the willingness to unlearn, and then the second is to learn. And that that's that's the thing that I find sometimes people don't uh, don't embrace enough. We're, yeah, which is an interesting concept because it's, it's counterintuitive to think of unlearning things in order to learn new things. Well, let, let's, let's talk about what makes people successful. So I grew up on Saturday Night Live hmm. um, and I watched Chris Farley, Adam Sandler, Tina Fey, Will Ferrell, David Spade, all these people, they went from SNL and they created movies and companies and all these other things. But then there was other networks or other organizations out there that you know they had capable people, smart people. and they didn't have so much success. So what was it about situations like this that allowed so many people to go off and you know, do great things and be highly successful in like a, a small concentrated group? SNL is a particularly interesting example and one that I, as you know, talk about in my Superbosses book. So Superbosses, just to give us a really brief context, Superbosses is just a make-believe word I used to describe these leaders that have a tremendous track record of generating and regenerating talent on a continual basis. Kind of like what you just described with the, the Tina Fey's and you know, Seth Meyers and I mean, goes all the way back to John Belushi and Gilda Radner and all kinds of other stars and superstars, really. And when you work for someone who builds an organization and a culture, and I think Saturday Night Live under Lauren Michaels is a good example, builds a culture where they, they do a whole bunch of things around how, to, how they uh, motivate people, how they inspire people, how they develop people, how they create teams that learn how to both collaborate, of course, but also compete, which I think is really a fascinating idea that I, I learned, in fact, from Lauren Michaels in my interviews with him for, uh, for the Superboss's book. It helps people raise their, raise their game. This collaboration competition point, by the way, I just want to say one other word about it because it's, it's another really counterintuitive idea that I've gotten plenty of pushback. I remember giving a talk once to a group of senior executives and I mentioned how the strongest teams, the best teams, this is what we learned from our research, the best teams, they collaborate really, really well. But we know that that's not an unusual idea, but they also are ready to compete with each other. They do both. And if one goes out of whack, they fail. They can't compete too much. We kind of can get that. They, have, you know, they don't want them to be at each other's throats. The part people don't understand is that if, if all you ever do is collaborate, you won't get people raising their individual level to a higher and higher level. Uh, there's a reason why we like competition. There's a reason why competitive, the competitive game gets people energized. So both are necessary. And in SNL, you certainly saw that because uh, how, uh, you know, how do you become famous and successful? You've got to get on the show and you've got to be in a skit. It gets on the show. Um, the show is only an hour and a half, and they typically have two and a half or three hours of content, even 24 and 36 hours before they start, and they kind of winnow it down. I mean, there's a lot of ways to get to success, especially for you know um, people earlier in their career who are listening. If you can find or have an opportunity to work for one of these super boss type leaders, the acceleration rate in terms of your career is just it's just uh, exponential. It's dramatic because uh, these are people that will help you get better. They might not be easy to work with because they're going to push you. The demands are high, but they'll help you get better. Uh, they'll help you raise your game. And uh, I mean, don't bother applying if you're not a high aspiration person. You got to want that. But if you want that, 
uh, this is how you accelerate careers. I think every company should spend more time trying to identify these people that have this kind of accelerant, this catalyst to, to, to developing talent, because that really is, in the end of the day, the most important competitive advantage in a company. Let's talk about the CFO. So, I mean, the traditional CFO may have the stigma of the green shade person in the back <laughs> room producing financial statements and going through debits and credits, and they're very compliance-based and transactional heavy. And maybe interacting with people is not their thing. Is it possible for somebody to transform later on in their career and become a super boss? You know, I don't, I don't know what the term is. Maybe they don't like people as much and maybe they're more into themselves, into the numbers versus into relationships. Can you transform or is it? Yeah, maybe- yeah. So a couple of things to say. First of all, we all have some innate abilities or disabilities based on our personality. And so, and you know, what, what we teach our children is to find a career path that it will be fulfilling for you, but where your skill set will be valued and you get paid for it. And so we kind of think about matching people to the right place. When it comes to people in finance or a CFO in particular, very senior executive who might be, you know, less focused on, on people and more focused on numbers. Let's just simplify it. Well, I often think about it like this. Is it possible to imagine a situation where you as a CFO will be less successful if your team is better than they are today? If your team can, can go one delta up in terms of capability, effectiveness, skill set, would you be less, is it possible for you to be less successful? And of course, the answer is no. You will only be more successful. Therefore, there is a return on investment that comes from this. You, whether you like people or you don't like people. And the truth is, super bosses know how to manage people. But Lauren Michaels is, is a big introvert. And others are, some of the others are as well. There's no pattern to, to that, to the super bosses that I, that I studied. But because, you know, and this is CFO language, right? Where do you get a return investment? You have to allocate resources. You have a portfolio, you have a certain amount of capital. And here I'm thinking about capital in terms of time and energy. And where are you going to allocate it? Well, if, if, if I could tell you, well, here's a place you could allocate it, uh, the development of the talent on your team to raise their game and be better. And the return on investment will be gigantic because they're going to be much more successful. I don't know too many CFOs who would say that's a bad idea. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's a great point. Let's switch gears over here. And I want to talk about your podcast, The Sidcast. And I've listened to um, quite a few episodes. I really like your conversational style. And you've been able to meet a, a bunch of people from different backgrounds. What's been the, the biggest thing you've learned along the way? Or what have you gotten the most out of through The Sidcast? It's really interesting. The Sidcast is just something I started and wrapped up or about to wrap up with season two, and I'll continue with season three in the, in the spring. And I just started because I, uh, I wanted to have these great conversations with people from different walks of life where I would learn. I guess I practice what I preach when it comes to learning, where I would learn and learn things I might not know about. And in fact, hopefully won't know about. So I have people from the world, music and politics and journalism, sports, business, of course, uh, education scientists. Um, and I love the idea of learning, engaging in a conversation where you bring, some, you, you, you bring somebody out. And the truth is we all have a story, maybe multiple stories actually. And, and those stories are worth telling. People that are super famous, we hear them all the time and they're pretty scripted and choreographed. The people that I talk to, I mean, they're, they're some pretty well-known people, but uh, there are also people no one ever heard of other than people in their own community or network. But they all have a story and, and you engage them and you bring it out and you're going to learn about life. Another way to say it is uh, one of my favorite podcasts also is How I Built This, Guy Raz, which is yeah, very famous. Right. And he talks to, uh, talks to an entrepreneur 
often a famous entrepreneur, a very successful entrepreneur, uh, about their journey. And in some ways, the SIDCAST is not so much how I built this, but how I built me, how I became who I am. And how did, how did that happen? And if you were to ask someone that question, you know, how did you become the person you, 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 you are today? Any one of us could say certain things about that, but I don't ask that question. I kind of try to answer that question by getting at it in a lot of different ways, by talking about, as, as we talked about today also, right? Talking a little bit about background, childhood, but some formative experiences, some of the things you've done, some of the career choices that you made. And at the end of the podcast, or about an hour or so each, I'm thinking that there, there are a handful of really cool insights that you may not have thought about before or not thought about the same way. And, and that some of those are going to apply directly to you, the listener, uh, to help you think differently. So there's this kind of abstract learning thing where you can learn about other people and their story, but then there's some pretty practical, insightful things about the journeys they've had, the choices they've made, the careers that they've uh, followed and what they've learned along the way. So let's talk about your journey more specifically. Have you ever had a time in life where you just thought, man, I'm not going anywhere. Things aren't working out. Am I even on the right path? You know, am I even fulfilling my potential? Have you ever felt stuck like that? And how did you get out of that phase? Uh, literally speaking, the uh, feeling like I'm not going anywhere is going on right now with COVID. But that's not what you're asking about. The time that this happened to me, where I didn't know if this was the right, if I was on the right path and I was worried about it. It's very, very early, which is probably good because you could make corrections. And it was when I was in my PhD program, uh, you, you take a lot of seminars, research seminars, and I had to present in an economic seminar, a whole bunch of work. I was pretty nervous about it. And it's silly to be nervous about it, but I was nervous about it. And I didn't like it. I didn't like the fact that I had to do it. And then I started thinking, well, if I'm going to be a professor, I'm going to be a teacher. I better like teaching or else I've chosen the wrong career path. And it was kind of an eye opener. It was about self-awareness, right? To try to understand, okay, so there is something there. Maybe it's that introversion. Uh, I think in this case, it was more, I didn't like the content. <laughs> I wasn't that excited about those, about that, that material. I thought it was missing the most important aspects of what was important, which is in my mind, much more about people and how people think and behave and misbehave as we've talked about. But it made me realize that I can't go down this path unless I'm, I'm really going to focus on and care about and value the teaching uh, aspect in the interaction. And what's ended up happening is it's just such a fulfilling thing. It's such a great thing to do. In fact, any, anyone could teach no matter what they're doing. You don't have to be in a university to teach. All, all of us that have kids have been teachers, whether we know it or not. And so that's been really, really valuable, really great. But you know, I haven't had a spot, to be honest, after that, where, where I felt like I'm on the wrong path. And that's, again, uh, and I admit I'm very privileged and very lucky because of the career. And I mentioned earlier that it's very, very entrepreneurial. And so if I think, feel like I'm getting stuck or becoming less interested in the path I'm going, I never have to plateau there because I can do something totally different, whether that's writing these books. I used to do a ton of media and on TV a lot. I do it a little bit less now because I'm less excited by it, but I did it and that was a lot of fun. I used to write for the BBC, a column. Uh, that went uh, was was global, read by millions of people. Did that for two or three years. That was really fun. The podcast is in this category now. For me, a completely different way to share ideas and learn. And so I've been very fortunate that way that I've never gotten stuck because I've been able to unstuck myself. 
Well, that's great. And you've had the unique opportunity to influence so many people's lives, you know, through your teaching. Yeah, I mean, think about everybody who's been through your classes, through the Tuck program. Also, outside of that, all the businesses that you're able to touch, the talks you've been able to give and, and what you just mentioned, all your writing. You know, what do you want to be known for? As you look back on your life, maybe you're, you know, as you pass and you look back on your, uh, your life here on earth, what do you want people to say about you and, and what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? Um, there's probably a couple of things. One is that I, I'd like people to really believe that I help them become more successful and fulfilled in their careers, whether that's through the podcast now, whether it's through books and research, whether it's being in my classes, that that's helped them. And I think, frankly, I've, I've done that and I feel good about that. The second thing, which I haven't done as much, is that I want people to know me. And of course, many people know me, but know me not as just as an academic, but to know me as a person in my own uh, story. And it has to do with legacy, not just for, for me, but, uh, and we all have this, I think, for our families, our parents, our grandparents, and we go back in time. And, you know, when we're all done with our, whatever number of years we're around, but almost everyone thinks about legacy to some extent, you don't want to be forgotten. Of course, the reality is that life keeps going the second any of us leave, life just keeps going. Uh, and that's just the way, that's the way it is. But I think I have more to say with respect to the more personal connection, not connection, but more personal impact. I've been thinking a lot about, I use the word wisdom now. It's something you could use when you get older, you can get away with it. Um, uh, I know that I'm much wiser than I ever was before. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I'm smarter. The brain cells start to go. Uh, I know I'm wiser. And, uh, and I think I probably have more to say, maybe in a book, maybe not maybe through the podcast, well, it's happening through the podcast, maybe in other ways, to kind of share what I've learned about life in the world. Uh, and that's only a little bit in my books. It's in there, but not directly. I, and I think, I'm, I think the next things I'm going to write about probably will be a more direct discussion and sharing of, of things, things like that around wisdom. Yeah. So is there something that you want somebody to know about you, but maybe you don't share in, in your books and in, in your talks and everything else? Share something about, about you personally that, that other people may not know and you may want them to know. Well, the answer to that question is going to be a big part of what I might frame the next thing I do, which is another way of saying I'm not going to answer that question now. <laughs> <laughs> so, more to come on that, huh? I mean, there's a lot I could say about my background and everything else, but the, the, the things that I think about more and more as uh, I keep saying, as I get older, I'm not that old. I mean, I'm, I'm just over 60. Hopefully there's a nice uh, runway still to come. But those things I haven't shared other than the beginnings of some lectures I've done, not lectures, but speeches and talks I've done about wisdom that where I'm testing out some ideas. Okay. Well, if you put that in the book, I'll, I'll buy it for sure. Thank mm. you for your time, Sid. And you know, you've definitely had an impact on my life. And just like I, I said, with many other people, I'm sure as well. And I appreciate your time today and your insights that you've shared and the time that you've taken to you know, put your thoughts and ideas into books and into talks and other pieces of media where the world can, can hear your perspective. I think it's extremely valuable. So thank you very much. My pleasure, Steve. I enjoyed it very much. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at cultivar.com. I would love to connect. All the best.